Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today we're reading from the book of Luke, um, chapter 8, verse 40 to 56. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. It's on page 709. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him, and now she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, He did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Good morning. Great to have everyone here this morning. Uh, Before we get into the message, there is one thing that I would like to remind you of, something that's happening next week that is, I think, incredibly important for us. It's our all-church huddle that we have been talking about for a long time, have postponed one time because we know that people today have not always been comfortable coming and gathering in in, uh, large Uh, groups of people, especially when you're eating together, but we have decided that we are going to go ahead and go 
for it next week. And so what we'll do is, is it'll actually be a part of the worship service. We'll take a little break from our Luke series and, uh, and talk a little bit, kind of introduce the topic that we're going to talk about. And then afterwards, we're going to have a potluck together and you can look in your bulletin to see what, uh, what we're asking you to bring. We have it all coordinated and everything. Uh, it's not anything super creative. It's kind of what we always do when it comes to potlucks, but uh, it'll go a lot better if you follow the directions. Uh, so uh, anyway, plan on being a part of that. Uh, I don't know how long it'll go. I, I, I'm hoping to have you out by, at, by 2 o'clock at the latest. But what we're going to do then is we're going to just spend some time talking and praying together. We'll hear some testimonies about what God has been doing uh, over the last couple of years. Because I know that there are a lot of people, uh, not just in the church, but in our society in general, who are discouraged uh, by you know, the pandemic just dragging on and sort of some of the continued unrest that's happening uh, in our country and in our world. But we still have a job to do as a church. And in fact, in times like this, I think the church is more needed than, than just about any other time. And, uh, and so we just want to gather together for some inspiration, for a reminder of the task that we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And so I hope that you'll stick around and join us for that. If you're joining us on live stream, we would love it if you would come and, uh, and be a part of that next week. It's a very, very important time, I think, for our church as we seek to move forward and to, uh, to reach people uh, with the good news of Jesus. So come and be, be a part of that. All right, the message. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about miracles. And we use that word a lot in our day, don't we? You maybe don't even realize how much we use it. And usually, when we use the word miracle, we mean something like uh, an event that happens against all odds. So, for instance, oftentimes we apply it to sports, don't we? Do we talk about miracles in sports all the time? In 1980, for instance, you know, the Winter Olympics is going on right now. But in 1980, we had this famous moment where the United States hockey team was uh, severe underdogs to the dreaded Soviet empire. At, well, their hockey team anyway. And, uh, and miraculously, they, uh, they pulled out a victory. And you remember, even at the end of that broadcast, Al Michaels' famous question that he asks, what did he ask? Do you believe in miracles? Thanks, Andrew, our resident sports trivia expert here. <laughs> Do you believe in miracles? But of course, it wasn't just that. They're all over the place. For instance, there have been a number of sports moments that we dub miraculous. We have the Music City miracle. This is probably a lesser known one where the Tennessee Titans threw a lateral on a kick, kick return to win a playoff game uh, in the NFL. And then a few years ago, we had our own Minneapolis miracle, right, where Stefan Diggs caught a pass from, what was it? Who was it? You don't even remember. Case Keenum uh, at last second and miraculously won the game against the, uh, the New Orleans Saints. Uh, my personal favorite is one that's called the Memorial Day Miracle, where Sean Elliott of the San Antonio Spurs in 1999 towed the sidelines, just staying in bounds to hit a three-pointer over, uh, I, don't even, I don't even know who that is, I can't see on, uh, uh, on the back of his jersey there, but he hit that shot. And they won the game in the Western Conference Finals, and they call it the Memorial Day Miracle. 
Okay? But miracles are not just limited to sports. Right? Remember a few years ago we had the miracle on the Hudson where Chelsea Sullenberger uh, had a problem. Actually, I think birds uh, got into the engines and uh, he was flying over New York and he ended up having to land the plane on the Hudson River. And uh, we call that the miracle on the Hudson. And also, if you've ever been to the state fair, we actually have a building that's called the Miracle of Birth Center, where you can go in and you can see pigs and sheep and cows giving birth. They haven't added humans to that yet, but we'll see. Maybe that'll happen someday. I hope not, but... You never know, right? Uh, so we talk about a lot about miracles. But we have to, I guess, ask that question. Maybe Al Michaels' great theological question. Do you believe in miracles? Now, of course, we all know that when we call these events miracles, they're not really using the technical definition of the term, which, which I would say if you want to define a miracle, you would say it's when God breaks the laws of nature to do his work in the world. Uh, so while a, a sports play, an amazing sports play, maybe a great feat of athleticism might be improbable, it's not really a miracle. In fact, God may have even been involved in Sully Sullenberger landing the plane on the Hudson River But the captain was also a skilled pilot with 20,000 hours of flight experience. And of course, as amazing as having a baby is, and as much as it reminds us of the goodness of God, using that definition, we can't really call it a miracle. It's probably just semantics, but I wonder if using the word miracle so flippantly can oftentimes dull us to the fact that miracles actually do happen. Now, to complicate things further, we, uh, we have to realize that not every act of God is a miracle. Christians believe in something called providence, where God works through natural processes to accomplish his purpose. And so, for instance, many of you know how we got the building on the corner of 33rd and Johnson. Uh, it was one that I think the church for a long time had wanted and, and prayed for and, and thought what it would be advantageous for us to have. And so we prayed for it. And, and in fact, when we were praying for it, we realized that if we did that, we would have to kick out the coffee distributor that was there, and we didn't really want to do that. But one day, we were having a, a, a prayer walk, and we stopped in front of the building, and we prayed for the business. And six weeks later, the business tripled, and it got too small, and it had to move out of there, opening up the opportunity for us to be able to purchase the building, which, by the way, we purchased for about 60% uh, of the cost of what a house goes for in this neighborhood today. Was that a miracle? Well, I can't really think about any, I can't think of any natural laws that were broken through it, but you'll never convince me that God was not at work in that process. Okay? It was an answer to our prayer. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today is actually a series of four different stories that talk about miracles. And, and it's an example of the fact that sometimes if we limit the reading that we do in Scripture to just the short little passages that the NIV lays out for us, sometimes we can miss the, the greater meaning of a passage. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to expand the passage that Allison read earlier to these four stories. Now, she read two of them, uh, the raising of Jairus's daughter and then the healing of the woman who was bleeding, uh, but they are only a part of a series of four stories. Now, at this point, Jesus has settled into his public 
public ministry. He's gathered his disciples together. He preached the sermon on the plain where he gave his sort of manifesto about what it means to follow him. And now Luke tells a series of miraculous stories to validate the ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to walk through each of these stories one by one. And then we're going to tie them together at the end so you can see very clearly uh, Luke's point in the end. The first story starts in Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 22, and it's just verses 22 through 25. Now, what's happening is, is Jesus has just finished teaching. He was on the northeast, northwest side of the lake. Let me see. For you guys, it would be up here, right? He was on the northwest side of the lake and uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And he says to his disciples, let's take a boat over to the other side. And actually, where he was going was kind of down in the southeast. Now, the boat that they were getting into was not a yacht by any means. I mean, they weren't taking a luxury cruise on Lake Minnetonka here, right? It was probably a fishing boat, big enough to get all 13 of them in there, but not a lot of breathing room, actually. But while they were in the middle of the lake, it says that a storm hit that was so strong that the disciples were afraid that the boat was going to capsize. And and keep in mind that many of the disciples were fishermen by trade, and so it's not like they'd never been out on a boat in a storm before. Uh, But yet they were so terrified, they were afraid for their life. But then in a sort of funny scene... While the disciples were fearing for their lives, being tossed and turned in this boat, Jesus was sleeping like a baby, sleeping in the front of the boat. Now, I don't know if, you, if this is the case for you, but when I'm afraid, when I'm anxious, I don't sleep very well. Is that, is that true? I, I can lay in bed for a long time at night with things you know, running through my head when I'm afraid or when I'm anxious, and yet... This here shows the difference between Jesus and his disciples. The disciples were terrified. There was no way they were going to fall asleep at this time. But Jesus isn't afraid at all. Well, the disciples are so afraid that they decide to wake Jesus up. And they probably say something like this. Jesus, how can you sleep at a time like this? Don't you realize we are about to drown? And Jesus wakes up. And Luke says that Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And they instantly calm down. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, where is your faith? Now, the passage itself doesn't say this, but I can imagine in my mind here, then Jesus kind of looking at him for a second and then laying down and closing his eyes and going back to sleep. And that leaves the disciples then looking at each other. And this is what they say to each other. He says, who is this guy that even the wind and waves obey him? Now, there are other nuances to the story that we could go through if we were just focusing on this one. But what I want you to see is that the main point of this story is that Jesus has power over the natural world. Jesus has power over the natural world. Okay, That's story number one. Story number two. Verse 26, Jesus and his disciples get down to the southeast side of the lake. And, uh, and it's what we would call the Gentile side of the lake. It's where the Decapolis was. So these were mostly Greeks around there. Uh, not very many Jews. Well, Jesus steps off the boat and immediately he is met by a guy who is possessed by a demon. Now, the guy was from the town uh, that was close by, but for a long time, he hadn't really lived in the town. In fact, Luke says that he had lived naked and in the tombs. 
Well, the question is, why was he living in the tombs? Well, the reason is, is that the people of the town were afraid of him. In fact, it says that many times over the years, the people of the town uh, tried to chain him uh, to, uh, to, because of his erratic behavior. And so at least at this point, he had been banished from the town, or maybe he didn't want to be there anyway because of the way people treated him, because of his behavior, because of the demon. And so Jesus, when he sees the man, he asks the demon's name. Or actually, first he tries, to, he tries to command him to come out. And then that only causes the demon to answer him. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And this is Luke pointing out very specifically that this demon knew who Jesus was. Knew Jesus by name. And was afraid. And so then Jesus asks the demon's name. And the demon says, well, it's not just me, but I brought all my friends too. And so call us legion because there's many of us. And then he begged them not to throw them into the abyss. And the abyss is just uh, kind of uh, the, the uh, prison that's reserved to punish demons in the end. Okay? And so what does Jesus do? Well, he gives them permission to go into a herd of pigs who then run down an embankment into the lake. Which, you know, I don't know. Depending on who you are, your reaction is a little bit different. I know that there are probably a lot of people today who wouldn't like this story today. People who, you know, animal rights people or animal lovers or something like that. They'll struggle with that. Did Jesus know that the pigs were going to commit mass suicide? Uh, is, is, would we consider this to be inhumane? You know, the, here was this whole big herd of pigs just minding their own business. And all of a sudden, Jesus cast demons into them and they die. And a lot of people today would have a hard time with that. Now, I'm not one of those people. I don't have a big problem with it. If I were there, I'd probably say, well, someone call the butcher. Let's get some bacon around here, right? Uh, and the, the, uh, Luke's Jewish readers probably would have been a little bit different too. In fact, they would have really liked this part of the story. Because when you think about it, what Jesus did was he took an unclean spirit and cast them into a herd of unclean animals and killed them all. And so they're like probably slapping high fives, like, look at Jesus, look at what he does. He's like really Jewish here, right? (laughs) But how did the owners of the pigs or the caretakers respond? How did the townspeople respond? Well, the caretakers went into the town and told everyone what happened, and the people came out, and it says the first thing that they found was the guy dressed and in his right mind. Now, you would think that they would be really happy about this. Like, they would be amazed by it. Uh, A guy who had just been released from years of demonic oppression. But actually, if you look at it, they weren't happy at all. And it says specifically one reason, but I can imagine there are probably a couple. I mean, the first reason I can think of is, you know, pigs were big business. I mean, they were the business in those days. And so, Jesus just uh, got rid of some people's livelihood. Okay, so I could see how they would be a little bit troubled by that. But they were also afraid. In fact, they were so afraid that they didn't ask Jesus to stick around. They asked him to leave. And this is something that I think for us seems a little bit puzzling. Because if you just saw a guy be freed from years of demonic oppression, wouldn't you want him to stick around and see what else he might be able to do? I mean, maybe if there were something that you had uh, going on in your life, you might stick around and go, all right, Jesus, how about this? Can you take care of this? But actually, they didn't do that because they didn't know what to do with that kind of power. I mean, they might have thought something like, well, who is this guy? 
Isn't, isn't he Jew? Is, is, is he from the other part of the lake? You know, what is, he, what is he here to do? Is he here to destroy our economy? If we let him come into town, is he going to burn the whole town down? What is, he, what is he doing here? They didn't know what to do with that kind of power. But for the guy, well, he has a different response. See, because Jesus restored his life. And so you can't blame him for being so grateful that he just wanted to pack up everything and follow Jesus wherever he went. Because Jesus had earned his loyalty. But of course, we see here that Jesus tells him, no, no, don't follow me. You're going to be much more effective if you stick around here and tell everyone what happened. Which I find really interesting. We were talking about this in small group yesterday. Uh, The fact that that, that Jesus, at least in this, in this moment, didn't do a lot of like hardcore discipleship. He said, no, don't follow me. Stay here and testify to everything that I did. Maybe he realized that there would be time for discipleship later. But right now, those people needed to hear about the power of Jesus. And so the man stayed. And he was so transformed that he told everyone what Jesus had done for them. Now again, there are lots of other things that we could draw out of this story. But Luke's main point in this story is that Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. Okay, two stories. Here's, Here's number three. Actually, number three and four are masterfully woven together. Uh, Jesus goes back across over to the Jewish side of the lake. And so the first story, the third story, I guess, uh, is a story about a local synagogue leader named Jairus, who had a 12-year-old daughter who was on her deathbed. She was dying, and so he came to Jesus. Now, you can imagine how desperate he was. If you had a a 12-year-old child, imagine what you would do if you were a parent. In fact, I I know what a parent would do because I've actually seen it before. There was a mother in our church in Iowa whose son, when he was, I think, eight years old, was diagnosed with a a rare... uh, untreatable brain disease. At least it was untreatable at the time. Um, and, uh, and she was a nurse practitioner, so she knew her way around medical journals. She knew her way around the medical community and looked and looked and looked to find answers and actually found out that the University of Minnesota was starting to treat this disease by doing a bone marrow transplant. Now, the problem is, is that this kind of treatment for that disease was still experimental, so the insurance company said that they wouldn't pay for it. And she appealed to them, and they denied it. And she even contacted her senator to see if there was something that her senator could do. Well, I don't remember exactly what happened, but finally she was able to get something done. But every day that passed another, was another day that this disease progressed further and further down the road. And yet it seemed like no one else seemed to be in a hurry. She was desperate. Everyone else was just taking their time. But finally, through her persistence, they were able to do the transplant, and praise God, it arrested the disease. Okay, now, imagine that kind of desperation and transplant that onto Jairus. Only, in this case, it wasn't a matter of months that his daughter was going to die. It was maybe a matter of hours, maybe a matter of minutes. And so he was, he was in a bit of a, of a hurry. And so he pleaded with Jesus, come to my house, you can still save her. Well, Jesus did respond to him, started making his way over to her house, but really for a couple of reasons, probably the biggest reason, the crowd was so large 
that he had to go really slowly. Like it was hard to make it through with this kind of a crowd, with all of these people pressing in on him. Everybody wanted a piece of him. But not only that, but while he was on the way to the house, Jesus actually stopped. He stopped. And he said this, he said, wait, who just touched me? And it was kind of a strange question because there were so many people and, and you know, they didn't really have a, a sense of, of uh, personal space. And so it's possible that any number of people could have been touching Jesus. In fact, Peter responded, he's like, what do you mean who touched you? Like, everybody is touching you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. No. There was someone in particular that touched me. And everybody else took a, everybody took a step back. Well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. They thought that, you know, they did something wrong. Jesus was mad or, or something like that. But Jesus said, but Jesus said, someone touched me because the power has gone out of me. Now, think about Jairus during this time, right? He's desperate for his child to be saved. He knows that, that time is ticking on her life. And so I can imagine him thinking during this time, hey, Jesus, what does it matter who touched you? Okay, can we just, can we just get moving here? Seems like things are, are moving along here. But the, the strange thing is, and, and it kind of reminds me of the first story with Jesus sleeping in the boat. Jesus was really in no hurry. Someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. And at this point, the woman came sheepishly out of the crowd Because she probably figured that if Jesus knew that power had gone out of him, he could probably figure out who it was, right? And so she felt like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm caught. And so Luke says that this was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, most commentators say that this refers to menstrual bleeding, but even if it wasn't that, it would have been the same, the condition would have meant not just physical harm, but it also would have meant social harm. And this is where we start to see some of these stories come together. You see, because her bleeding would have made her ceremonially unclean. She wouldn't have been able to worship in the temple. Uh, She wouldn't have been able to touch anyone or they would become unclean. And so for 12 years, she was an outsider, just like the demon-possessed man who is living in the tombs. She may as well have been living in the tombs. Now, if Jesus was like the Pharisees, he would have pointed out the fact to, uh, to the lady that when you touched me, I just became unclean. And now I've got to go through this whole purification process. What in the world were you thinking? But instead, he didn't do that. In fact, just the opposite happened. When she touched Jesus, rather than him becoming unclean, she became clean and was restored to her community. See, she expected Jesus to be angry Because she knew that she had crossed the boundary line. But instead, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And so rather than seeing her action as an act of defiance, even though she did break the law, he saw it as an act of faith. But when we reflect on this story, we see that Luke's point is that Jesus has the power over sickness. Story number four, back to Jairus. 
Jairus starts to come back into focus, and it's interesting. And, and, and I think Jairus would have been really interested in this amazing thing, this healing of the woman, uh, and that. Uh, but I imagine there was still probably something inside of him thinking, Jesus, could we just hurry things up here? And then someone came to him with bad news. Someone from his house. Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Think about the flood of emotions that would have been going through his mind. First, this deep grief from losing his daughter. Second, the, the hope that he had that he had found someone who could actually save her was dashed. And he could have felt some regret, maybe even some, some anger, that Jesus took his sweet time and just let her die. You know, this is the stuff that uh, comic book villains are made of right here. Right? Jesus was his last chance. And he failed him. Well, Jesus overheard the news. And so he turned to Jairus and he said, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And then he continued on to her house. Well, when they arrive at Jairus' house, Jesus has only Peter, James, and John and Jairus and his wife go into the house. And then, in the privacy of their own home, he took the girl by the hand, which, by the way, which would, have, would have also crossed the line of ceremonial uncleanness. You're not supposed, to talk, not supposed to touch dead people. And yet he does that, and she wakes up and is better. Jesus raised her from the dead. Well, despite the fact that Jesus then told the girl's parents and the disciples to keep quiet about it, he started using this sort of ambiguous term, she's only sleeping, you know, to sort of cover it up. Actually, Luke's point in this passage is that Jesus has power even over death itself. So there we are, four stories. Four stories of Jesus' power. He has power over the natural world. He has power over the spirit world. He has power over sickness. And he has power over Death And Luke tells those four stories together to make a point. That Jesus has power over everything. Now, not everyone in Jesus' day would believe Jesus' claim or Luke's claim about Jesus. But these stories wouldn't necessarily have been a stretch for people because their worldview allowed for it. We live in a world where people say things like, Well, I don't believe in a God who does miracles because I believe in science. Even some modern theologians say the same thing. We can no longer, you know, we can believe in the Bible as a book of good teachings, but we really can't believe in the supernatural part of it. So we just have to set that aside. The people who live in the age of modern medicine and technology can no longer believe in miracles. But I don't see why that has to be the case at all. See, I believe in science and technology. I do. I believe in medicine and viruses and germs and even vaccines. And I believe in spiritual beings and miraculous healing and God working in ways beyond what we can understand. And someone might say they don't believe because they've never seen a miracle personally, but there's only a contradiction if we make up our minds ahead of time that it's impossible for God to break into the world. But if you believe that God broke into the world, became physical, became flesh in the person of Jesus, then why would it be a stretch for us to believe that he could do the same thing today? The point is this. 
Whether he works through miracles or through providence, whatever you want to call them, the Bible tells us that God is alive and active in our world. He cares about what you're going through, and he has the power and authority to do something about it. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is, do we really believe it? Now, if you answer yes to that question, I want to follow it up with another question. How is your prayer life? Because those things are connected, right? And don't, isn't, don't we believe that as Christians? See, if we believe that Jesus has all power and authority and cares about what's going on, if we really believe that, and it's not just an, an empty intellectual thesis, then how do we pray? You see, because I think most of the time for people, prayer is just something that we do because we know it's something that we're supposed to do. Or sometimes we think it's just emotionally healthy or psychologically healthy or something like that. So we do a, a quick prayer before meals. We do a perfunctory prayer at the beginning of service or at the beginning of small group or at the end of small group. Or we tell people, I'm praying for you, which most of the time just means I'm thinking of you. Be encouraged. Right? But people who believe that, who really believe it, who believe that God's power is unleashed through prayer, when they pray, it's different. They pray more often. They pray with more passion. They pray with more faith. And so I'll ask the question again. What does your prayer life reveal about what you really believe about Jesus' power? Oh, also, one more thing. When we believe that Jesus has ultimate power and authority, it does one more thing in our lives. It helps us overcome fear. You know, when you look at these four stories together, um, all of them have aspects of fear. In fact, it's a pretty major theme in all of them. The disciples in the boat were terrified. The people of Gerasa were afraid of the man, and then when the man was, was freed from demons, they were afraid of Jesus. Jairus was afraid that he was going to lose his daughter. The woman was afraid that when she touched Jesus that she had done something that was unforgivable. But notice that in every single circumstance, Jesus was never worried and he was never afraid. He was never in a hurry. When the storm threatened to capsize the boat, Jesus was resting peacefully. When Jairus told Jesus his daughter was dying, Jesus took his sweet time to get there. And why is that? It's because when you know the God who can, the God who will raise people from the dead, then what is there to be afraid of? And I think that's really the heart of the message today. You see, as Christians, we talk a lot about faith, but I wonder how many of us really have it. Because... Faith is more than just to agreeing to certain facts about God. It's about learning to live day to day in the power that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And I'm not promising you miracles on demand. I'm not going to say that. I'm not saying that it's always God's will for everyone to be healed. But I am saying that the same Jesus who calmed the storm, who freed a man from evil spirits, who healed a woman and raised a girl to life is the same God that knows you and cares about the details of your life. And when you know that, and when you internalize that, you don't have to live in fear. Because Jesus is not afraid of anything that you're going through. 
As we close today, I want to take some time to reflect. I want you to take some time to reflect on your life and your faith in Jesus. Maybe there's a situation right now that's causing you a great deal of fear and anxiety. It might be something that you've dealt with for a very long time and you've exhausted all your options. It may be something that is pretty new, maybe news that you got just recently. But it may be that God wants to do something in you today. And so I guess, you know, we can take a look at these stories and, and characterize them this way. Maybe it's a storm that you're going through. There's some kind of turmoil going on in your life, relational, financial, or something else. You know, the last couple of years have created a lot, <clears throat> a lot of turmoil for many people. And, uh, and it's causing a great deal of anxiety along with all of the normal stuff of life. And if you have some kind of storm going on in your life, I want you to take the time to commit it to Jesus and see if he wants to calm that storm for you. Or maybe a spirit. <clears throat> maybe there's some kind of spirit that you just haven't been able to get rid of. It may be an actual spirit, I don't know. Or it could be something like a habit or an addiction or doubt or worry or even mental illness. Maybe that's something that God wants to heal in you and to strengthen you. Or maybe there's some kind of physical healing that you need that, that God wants to do. You're going through something in life and you need that. Or maybe it's emotional, relational, maybe something like that. Or it may just be that you need new life. Obviously, you're not physically dead because you're here or you're watching. But maybe you feel that way spiritually. And today you want to reach out to Jesus and you want to say, Jesus, make me new. Give me the new life that you've promised to me. Breathe life back into me. And if that's you, then today I want, you to, I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to take a couple of moments and, uh, and consider... Is there a place in your life where Jesus wants to, to give you power? Might be one of these areas. It might not fit neatly into one of those categories. Those were just ideas for you. But if God is speaking to you, take the time to apply his power to your life. Let him remove your fear. And if you have something like that, we actually would love to be able to pray with you. And there are a couple of ways to do that. We did hand out some prayer cards at the beginning. Maybe not all of you got them, but um, if, you, if you need one, you can just raise your hand. But there's also another way uh, to do it. We're going to try this out. And, and this is something that will go to the office. Is you can just text the word POWER to 612-712-9727. And it will send you a prompt where you can share what you believe that God wants you to do. And we would love to hear these things. We want to hear what God is doing in your life. And I promise you that, that we will pray for you in that. And if there's follow-up that we need to do, you can just ask us. And we would love to have a conversation with you and, and talk to you about some of these things that are happening in your life. Because we believe that the power of Jesus is real. Do you believe that? If that's the case, then whatever it is that you're going through, commit it to him. Go ahead and take a couple of minutes now.
God, I know that people have so many struggles. Lots of different ways we can identify them. But God, if it's really true that you have power over everything, then we as people of faith want to apply that power to whatever situation is going on in our lives. And God, you know where people are. You know their level of faith. You know their struggles and concerns and worries and doubts and fears. And we just pray together as your church. That just like you took the girl by the hand and called her daughter, that we would realize that as your children, that we can apply that power to our lives. And God, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means physical healing or that you'll solve the situation that we're going through. But one thing I do know that you promised is that you will take away our fear as we put our faith in you. And so we pray that you would do that today. God, we thank you that you are a God who broke into our world in the person of Jesus. That you didn't see fit just to stay where you were, but you came and you became one of us to show us the power that you have and the power that we have through you to overcome all of these things that are happening in our lives. So Lord, give us faith. Increase our faith. Increase our, our, our dedication to prayer. And I pray that through that, God, that you would strengthen us. That we would know you in a deeper way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.